Ruby on Rails has been worked on the most by its creator, David Heinemeyer Hansen. The next most frequent contributor to Rails is Aaron Patterson, our guest on today's episode of Software Engineering Daily. He's better known online as Tenderlove. Topics discussed in today's episode include Ruby relative to JavaScript, Rails relative to Linux, and DHH relative to Tenderlove. Aaron Patterson is a Ruby and Ruby on Rails core committer and works at Red Hat. Aaron, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Oh, thank you. You have more commits to Ruby on Rails than anyone except the creator of Rails, David Heinemeyer Hansen. And I'd like to start off by talking about your contributions. What is it about Ruby on Rails that motivates you to put so much work into the project? Uh, well, I don't. I guess there's a few. Well. I'll tell you my main reason. Essentially, like um, I fell in love with Ruby, the programming language, uh, and I got a job doing Ruby on Rails. Right, so I got a Rails Rails position, and I was just super grateful that I had this framework that I could actually use to, you know, program Ruby as my day job. Like I was a Ruby programmer for I don't know maybe a year or two before I ever got a job doing it and Rails was the way I could actually work with Ruby. So um, I wanted to do everything I could to, you know, make sure that everybody else could do Ruby programming as well. So that's really what motivated me to get started mm. working on Rails internals. Okay. So when you first got involved, what kind of development work were you doing at the time? Uh, at the time I was just, I mean, I was just working at a, working at a startup. We just had a rails application. It was actually in, um, online advertising. <laughs> uh, and I don't know, like basically we would just run into a bug here or there and I would try to fix, you know, try to fix that bug and, um, send patches and stuff though. A while back I looked at by very first like the very first patch that i sent and it got rejected <laughs> do you remember what it was for uh it was just i don't remember exactly but it was just uh it was it was for a bug but somebody had actually already fixed the bug and i just didn't see it ah. this was back this was back when rails was still using uh subversion so i guess i just hadn't updated yet <laughs> <laughs> okay that's funny um, so, I mean, what were the, what were the projects when, when you started working on, uh, think or thinking more about rails, were there, were there some personal rails projects that you were working on? Mm, mostly, mostly for work. I mean, I wrote a blog, I wrote a blog with rails, um, and I'd write, you know, I don't know, a few apps here or there, but they were mostly just, you know, mostly just for play. It wasn't, mm. wasn't anything serious. Mm. I mean, the most, like, I've really done most of my serious Rails development at, you know, at work, mostly. Yeah. Um, I mean, did, did Rails contrast to frameworks you had used previously? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so my... Before I was a Rails programmer, I was a Java programmer doing J2EE development. Uh, and I mean, it was just using Rails was just a breath of fresh air. I mean, getting like 
there are so many problems with the uh, J2EE frameworks that we were using at work. I mean, the f- first problem was we actually had to pay for this framework, so that meant it was impossible for me to do any programming on it at home in my free time, right? Uh, the other thing is, like, all the XML configuration files that we had to do, just setting it up was a huge... Mm. Setting the setting this framework up was such a huge pain that, like... You know, once I once I could get Rails up and running, it was I was I was hooked. <laughs> Actually, at that job, at that job, I got it I got it hooked up in using an Oracle database. Then it was it was a little bit more difficult than everybody else's setup, but I could actually get it going without writing tons of XML. So I was really happy. Do you think that people felt the same way when they first started using the Java frameworks like Spring? Honestly, I have no idea. Um, before I was a before I was a JTE person, I was a Perl person. Like I did a lot of Perl programming, and it was all website like app development with um, Perl. And like a lot of the stuff that we have in Rails, I already had that in the Perl frameworks that we were using. Uh, so it was actually really painful for me to go from Perl to J2EE. I, I didn't like it. Mm. Uh, the main reason I did it is because back then it was, it was, um, I think around 2001 and the first, you know, the first tech bubble was crashing and essentially my, my manager at work said, okay, um, you're going to need to learn how to do Java or find a new job. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I guess I'll learn how to do Java. <laughs> So, you know, it wasn't, I mean, for me going to J2EE was really terrible, but uh, I don't know, like, I don't know about the rest of the developer community at large. Yeah. Actually, come to think about it, this was, when I was doing J2EE stuff, it was before Spring was around, and we actually started using, we actually started using Spring, I remember, towards the end of... uh, Right before I quit that job, um, we started using Spring, and it was actually a lot easier than the stuff we were using before. We were using a thing called uh, ATG Dynamo, which probably people listening will have no idea what it is. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard of that. <laughs> so, you know, zooming out, what impact has Rails had on the world of software development? Hmm. I think Rails, Rails is at a few different impacts. One is, uh, off the top of my head, one is making it easier for people to get into doing uh, web development, um, which I think is really, really good. Like today, when I was doing J2EE stuff, like you had to do, you had to have a lot of, you know, experience doing programming already before you could start doing, you know, web application building. Like you had to, you had to already know a bunch of stuff about programming. Whereas today, uh, especially with the start of Rails, you didn't need to know you didn't need to know nearly as much to get a website, you know, an actual dynamic website up and running. Um, and I think that's actually I think that's actually really good. Mm. Uh, it's made the it's basically made it such that um, oh the developers now demand that a framework be easy, right? Yeah, it's 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 essentially a requirement these days you have to you have to be able to do that and if you don't do that then nobody's going to use you know nobody will use your framework mm. and i think 
I think that's good. I think it was a very, very good um, uh, way to push the, I guess, push the market forward, the market for you know, web frameworks, essentially. It's funny because I think in the past, perhaps the inverse was true, where if a framework was highly complicated and, uh, you know, you had to do a ton of configuration up front, um, it was almost seen as, as laudable. And it's like, okay, yeah, you've got to go through this trial by fire of reading the manual and reading all the documentation before <laughs> you are even uh, equipped to write a Hello World application. Um, yeah, that's how that's how you know it's scalable, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, so one of the things I find interesting, um, and you can tell me if this is an incorrect contrast, but it seems like you know between you and DHH, um, he is working on Rails for the sake of getting a better framework to build his his product Basecamp, um, but you are more concerned with kind of rails for the sake of rails would you would you say that's accurate comparison yeah i think that's i mean i think i think that's true or probably true to for the most part i mean i definitely work on rails for you know our applications at work like we have you know when we run into issues or there's some particular thing we need to change about the framework then you know i'll go ahead and do that but I would have to say, yeah, my main, like the main thing that keeps me motivated, especially over time, is uh, making sure that I can continue to work in Ruby for my day job and also make it so that other people can continue to work in Ruby for their day job. I think I'm just, I'm haunted by my past of being forced to use Java. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, uh, speaking of that, speaking of different frameworks how do you feel about the full stack javascript frameworks that have been growing in popularity um how do i feel about them well uh (laughs) yeah in terms of you know do you see any as a as a framework builder yourself are there things that you see as laudable about them that you like to import into the rails framework or are there uh warts within them that you think rails does better um, well, it's hard, it's hard to say there's, there's some stuff like some stuff that I see in node that I'd like to steal. I mean, whenever I see interesting things about other frameworks, I, I will think about how we could incorporate those into rails. Um, I mean, one of them, for example, like node is very, uh, IO oriented. And I think that's a good thing that we should steal. Um, but I don't know. Like, I don't like JavaScript. <laughs> mm, why not? Um, I just, it's just, well, mainly, okay, one thing I don't like about it, which is very, um, oh, I guess it's really superficial, is that I think the, the, the literal keyword function is too long. It really annoys me. <laughs> Mm. Like whenever you have to do, whenever you need to do an unnamed, like a lambda, essentially, you got to write out function. Yeah, uh, that I don't like that. Like Ruby's the way that Ruby does block passing and lambdas, lambdas in Ruby, I think is superior to the way JavaScript does them. Uh, the other thing is that I don't like the way I, and I actually think this is getting fixed in ES6, but uh, the way that. Um, self is handled essentially so inside of you'll see a common pattern in javascript is people will be like you know uh var self equals this and then reference 
self that self inside of an unnamed block mm. because because it's not saving the uh, this context that you want where Ruby's self is the one that you do want. Uh, but on the other hand, there's some things that I would like to steal from JavaScript too. For example, um, uh, though I don't know how we'd actually do this in Ruby, how we'd actually steal it, is one thing I like about JavaScript is when you say like object.method name, that doesn't actually call it call the method. It gives you the, the essentially the function back, right? Um, you have to add parentheses to the end of it to actually call that call that method, and I think that's a really cool and strong uh, strong feature that JavaScript has that Ruby doesn't. And the reason Ruby doesn't have it is because we can call you know if we say foo dot bar that actually calls the method. You can call the method without parentheses, mm, right? Yeah. The reason I like that in JavaScript is you can do a lot of interesting functional patterns with that. So you could say like, okay, uh, I want to map and I want the maps block to be some, you know, this object's function. So you can do you can do that with JavaScript and you can't do that with Ruby. And I think that's I think that's really cool. So that's one one feature of JavaScript I really like. Hmm. So one of the things that comes up when I talk to people about Rails versus full stack JavaScript is the trade-offs between having a multi-language paradigm versus having a single-language paradigm, uh, do you see it as inherently valuable to have a framework where there's multiple languages for multiple contexts of your application? Mm, I, I don't know if it's inherently valuable or not. I guess I know a lot of people, a lot of people complain that they have to do like... Um, Oh, they don't like doing context switches between languages. But I mean, it honestly, it doesn't really bother me. But it may just be that I've been programming for so long that I just don't care anymore. It doesn't. I just go to one language. I'm like, okay, I can figure this out. It's hmm. Fine. So it doesn't. You know, having that having that context switch really doesn't bother me at all. So, I mean, I don't know. For some people, it's probably good for some people who. You know, maybe they only know they only really know one language really well. So it would be beneficial to them if everything is in the same language. They could get more work done. I mean, really, at the end of the day, that's all I care about is how people can be more, you know, more effective at their jobs, right? Yeah, and you know, in some sense, I feel like even with if you're using JavaScript end to end, you are doing some polyglot development, some multi language stuff because. JavaScript, you know, raw JavaScript looks very different from React. Server-side. Well, yeah, yeah. Re- re- well, server-side or React.js code, which is, you know, call, people talk about that like it's JavaScript, but it kind of yeah. looks different. Um, so, I don't know. You know, it's it's. Uh, I think it's like you're polyglot if you do, polyglot if you don't. Yeah, um, pretty much. I mean, you don't have to, for example, like when you're writing client-side JavaScript, you don't need to worry about, um, you know, say the number of open file descriptors you have, right? That's mm-hmm. not a thing. But you do need to know that when you're on the when you're on the server side. And on the flip side of that, like on the server side, you may not be worrying about, especially if you're doing systems programming, you're probably not worrying about the DOM so much, right? Mm-hmm. You you have to think about these. You still have to switch contexts. You have to know, hey, I'm writing this. You know, I'm doing something with the client. I'm doing something with the browser here. Versus, I'm doing something. You know, I'm doing something on Unix. I need to know about you know 
these particular things. So, um, I don't know. I mean, yes, in both cases, you'd be using the same language, but you still need to be able to separate that knowledge, mm. right? Just because you know, just because you know how to write JavaScript for the client side, does not mean that you know how to write JavaScript for the server side. So, I want to talk about open source. Had you contributed to any open source software before you got into Rails? Um, yeah, I did a little bit of Perl open source stuff, um, but not very much. Like my very first uh, open source contribution was in like 2001, and it was to a Perl Perl module. And then once I switched over to Java, I really didn't do didn't do so much open source stuff. I'd say like. My open source career really started with Ruby and Rails. Mm. How does working on open source compare to the work that you do in proprietary systems, or the work that you have done? I guess most of the work that you do these days is open source. Yeah, yeah. I work at I work at Red Hat now, and all of our products are like everything is open source. Right. So <laughs> everything I do is open source. Um, but you know, when we were when I was working on proprietary web applications. Um, I don't know. I mean, I try to treat them the same. I try to treat them the same way, but uh, the reality is, like, when you're working on a proprietary side, I think you can be, especially if it's a proprietary website, like the backend code is proprietary, uh, you can be a bit more fast and loose with what you're doing. Uh, like, for example, when you're when you're developing a web app, you don't care about Semver on your web app, right? Like that's not a that's not a thing. You're like, okay, I'm just gonna add this new feature and fix a bug and push it out to production, and I'm done. You don't need to worry about it. Uh, and I think that's because you know your proprietary web app doesn't have any downstream customers necessarily. Um, that's a little bit different if you're developing, you know, proprietary API. API code, but what what about I mean, in terms of how it makes you feel? You seem very uh, emotionally rewarded by working on open source software. Um, yeah, I do. I do prefer to work on uh, open source software for sure. Like, I don't want to work. I really don't want to work on uh, proprietary stuff anymore. But I don't know that it's. I wouldn't necessarily say it's an ideological thing. It's just because um, I like working with varied people. Mm-hmm. I mean, before I'd gotten into open source, everybody that I had ever worked with was uh, local. I mean, like, you know, I go to the office, meet these people and, you know, have coworkers. And that was that was that. But when I got into the world of open source, it's like, I got to meet and work with all these people from all over the world, and that was really fun and rewarding for me. It, it opened up a it opened up a new world of software development to me. So that's why I enjoy doing it. So I, I totally uh, understand that. Um, when you talk to other people who have worked on large open source projects, like Linux, for example, do you get the sense that the Rails open source community has unique qualities that separate it from those other large open source projects? Mm, I don't know. I mean, we do have, I think every, every open source project is a bit 
different. Um, I particularly enjoy the Rails community because I think um, we're pretty easy to work with, relatively speaking. Uh, other open source projects are not so like not so easy to work with, uh, and I think that's that's one thing that I like about the rails rails community and our our project is like we do our best you know we do our best to work well with the community so you know if we can't we help people on board we help you know we try to give good feedback um and i think we we actively do that it's important it's important to us on the core team Hmm. Uh, i don't know if that's true for i mean some other pro it's it's hard to say because i've never i've never been a member of you know like the Linux kernel or whatever. Yeah. Every, you know what I mean. Like every every open source project I'm a member of is part of the Ruby community, and I think the Ruby community at large is mostly easier to work with than other communities. But I I don't have any data to back that up. You know. Well, I mean, organizations tend to follow uh, in in terms of uh, how their leaders operate, and if you compare Mots to how uh, Linus acts or at least at least how Linus is perceived by the community maybe he's a much warmer and fuzzier character in <laughs> in in pr- person but uh you know certainly my understanding of him uh, and how he's perceived in media and YouTube videos and blog posts that he writes is like really really harsh um, yeah, I've, I've I've read those emails yep <laughs> <laughs> it's like really harsh but clearly very effective so yeah. how does that compare to how Ruby on Rails is like? I mean, you're essentially a leader of Ruby on Rails, um, you know, through through action, you know, by being the second most frequent committer. Uh, I think, you know, probably clearly the way that uh, Linus runs stuff is effective. I mean, he, I guess, I mean, he seems to be, he seems to be getting stuff done, but at the same time, like, um, uh, it may not necessarily be fun to be there, you know? Like, I have a really fun time. Like, I have a really fun time programming. I have a really fun time being an open source, and I want other people in the community to feel the same way as well. I mean, programming programming isn't just my job. It's also my hobby. And I feel like a lot of people who are contributing to Rails, that's or contributing to open source, it's true for them as well. They're they're probably, you know, most people are probably doing it during their free time. So, I mean, it seems like uh, if you're if you're not nice to them, it seems like you're disrespecting their free time. I mean, that that might sound a little bit harsh, um, but maybe you're not. You know, they could be having a better time. You know what I mean? Like, why why should they be why should they be contributing to your open source project rather than like, I don't know, going out and flying a kite or something? <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. So, what are the big challenges of? I, I guess I don't know how much delegation you do, but uh, in in terms of being in charge of a large percentage of, or maybe it's not even in charge. I mean, I'm I'm cur- just curious how the delegation and the governance works in such a large and important open source project? Mm, For Rails, uh, this is like, this is pretty specific to Rails. Uh, For Rails, it's like, it's a fairly, I guess, motley crew. Um, We don't have, I mean, 
typically what will happen is, you know, if there's some feature I want, I will just add it or I'll ask someone to do it. Um, and the same thing goes with DHH, though his requests are typically, the things that he wants done are typically like broader and, um, I don't know, uh, more like have a greater impact. Mm. Like, for example, um, even though, you know, even though I have the second, you know, so many commits to Rails, that doesn't mean that I could introduce something like Action Cable, right? I couldn't just, I couldn't unilaterally be like, okay, boom, there we go, new thing. Mm. Whereas that's something that, that's something that DHH can do. And he can because it's his project. So, you know, it's fine. Um, stuff that I do would be like, when I put together projects, I'll sometimes I'll do them. Sometimes I'll ask other people to do them. But my strategy is essentially to ha- add stuff that's not. Um, uh, I don't know. It's not so so showy. I guess I don't. I don't mean showy in a bad way. I mean more. Uh, you know, it's just not as. I don't know. I don't know. Not as advertised as much. Ah, I guess. I see. It'd be like it'd be like you know, it's it's there, and when you discover that feature, that's great. Or mm-hmm. it's maybe it's more extensible in this particular way that we like, you know, so we can build build better stuff with it. Um, that's typically the stuff that I I target. And the reason the reason I target that type of stuff is because I think um, Rails as a framework is extremely good and satisfies like I don't know eighty percent of everything I need to do. So the stuff that I want to add is, you know, very, I don't know, uh, incremental, I guess. Sure. So you're a core committer to Ruby as well as Rails. How do those two communities compare to one one another? Um, the Ruby core team is a bit, well, it's... I don't know. It's they're different. They're different for sure. Um, one difference is like we do the Ruby core team. We do, I'd say like ninety percent of our communication via email. Um, so this is just practically speaking, right? We do ninety percent of our communication via email, where Rails is like ninety percent of our communication via chat, hmm. uh, chat and GitHub essentially. Uh, also. Like, if I wanted to add something new to Rails, uh, and sometimes I do, I can. I just do it, right? Uh, whereas that's not true with Ruby the language. With Ruby, it's it's Matt's. He has to he has to say that's the thing I want. Mm. So, I mean, typically my responsibilities on the Ruby core team are like uh, bug fixes or um, maybe optimizations or something like that. Nothing that's, uh, or in uh, standard library, like bug fixes in standard library and stuff. As far as the language is concerned, it's mats only. Um, which isn't true of the Rails framework, where the Rails framework is concerned, we're, uh, the core team is a bit more, or has a bit more responsibilities, right? Or, or they can make more changes more freely. How, how has Ruby evolved uh, since the time you've gotten involved in the project? Uh, how has it evolved? Uh, I don't know. I mean, more, I guess the first version of, of Ruby I used was probably 1.8.1.1. 1. 
point two, I think. Uh, and since then, I mean, there's been a ton of stuff, but it's mainly um, mainly uh, performance stuff, like better garbage collector, a uh, virtual machine, uh, and then you know various things like encoding, you know, adding an encoding system, things like that. Uh, well, what are the challenges to to writing code for stuff like that? Like, for example, like I know nothing about a virtual machine or uh, how to write a garbage collector. Did you have to learn how to do that stuff in order to be effective as a Ruby developer? No, no, not at all. Uh, I think that's like that's one thing I like uh, about. Well, when you say Ruby developer, do you mean I mean Ruby developer or? of Ruby? Uh, <laughs> okay. uh, no, you know, no, I didn't. I didn't have to know that stuff before I became a core team member. Uh, mostly, like you know, Ruby has a lot of stuff in its a lot of code in the standard library, and uh, not enough people doing bug fixes and stuff on it. So basically, that's how I got onto the core team. Is I was doing a lot of bug fixes, and they just said, "Okay, we'll put you onto the core team, so you can just commit bug fixes without submitting patches all the time." So. Uh, I didn't need to know how that stuff worked at all. It's just after, you know, once you start poking around, then you learn that stuff over time. Hmm. I mean, I've been on the, I think I've been on the Ruby core team for, I want to say seven or eight years now. Uh, And I mean, just over time, you start investigating stuff like you get a bug and maybe it's, it's a hard one and you just keep diving down and down until you, you know, find, oh, this is a bug in the, it's actually a bug in the garbage collector. And in order to understand that, you had to understand the garbage collector. So, you know, just that type of stuff over time, you learn it. Right. So we did an interview with David Heinemeyer Hansen recently, as I, uh, you know, said to you before this began. Um, And, you know, he said that the Ruby language fit his brain better than other languages. And he talked about the trade-offs that, Ruby makes in terms of speed and efficiency versus developer productivity. And I'm curious if you feel a similar affinity for the language and also, well, I mean, obviously you feel some sort of affinity, but if that uh, programmer ergonomics is uh, drives your affinity and also where, uh, where you've seen as a Ruby developer, as a core Ruby developer, where you've seen that trade-off be made in the development of the language? Well, I think, I mean, um, so yeah, developer ergonomics are incredibly important to me and that's one of the reasons I that Ruby really clicked with me and I wanted to stick with it. It's just so easy to use. It's so easy to use and just when you, uh, things aren't unexpected. Like when you do something and it you know, you expect something to work most of the time it does, which isn't true with a lot of other languages. Uh, so that's that's one reason I really liked it. And as far as like speed, speed is concerned is I, I think it's an interesting that's an interesting question because I don't think uh, I don't necessarily think there are any trade-offs. Like I don't actually think that's true. Hmm. Uh, I think that Ruby can be, we can make Ruby as fast as we want it to be. 
Uh, it's just that we have to come up with clever hacks. Like, uh, so for example, one thing is monkey patching. For example, if you monkey patch something, the time that you monkey patch something, it's going to slow your program down. Um, but over time, your program, as the program runs, it actually speeds up, and that didn't matter anymore. But we, or it doesn't matter anymore. But you have to come up with those um, those types of hacks to get around that thing. Like if you didn't, uh, if the virtual machine was naive, then that root, that that monkey patch would have impacted the speed of the whole program. Uh, so, I mean. There's other things like some some bits of APIs like getting bindings on procs, calling evals. Those things are exposed, and using them can slow down your program. But I think a clever implementer, which um, Koichi is, and a lot of the people on the core team are very clever implementers. I think what they'll do is say, okay, you know that feature is available, but if you use it it could possibly slow down your program. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't necessarily know that it's a trade-off. It's just exposing that feature to you and saying, well, if you use it, it's going to slow you down. Ah. Well, you don't, have to, you don't have to use it, right? It's there, but just, you know, if you need a fast program, don't use it. Right. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so you have a lot of contributions to Rails and Ruby that we could discuss, but I want to talk about a adequate record because uh, I think it's a, a product that you take a lot of pride in, and uh, it's a project that you worked on to speed up active record by a, a factor of two or more. And um, in order to, to talk a little bit about adequate record and these improvements, I, I would like to start by talking a little bit about active record. So for those who don't know, what is active record? So Active Record is a, it's an ORM uh, that just wraps your database up and does query like basically generates SQL queries for you and returns objects from the database, uh, and it's a very very simple it's a very simple ORM where it just maps um, class names to table names. And if you look at uh, Martin Fowler wrote a uh, pattern called Active Record, and that's essentially what this is is that that pattern turned into code. Okay. And what are the the steps that um, that people need to understand about the 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 active record um, AST generation and um, uh, translation to, to SQL query that uh, what are, what would they need to know to understand how adequate record works? Uh well hmm. I mean at a high so at a high level essentially what Active Record does is well. I should probably just for for people who don't know, let's talk about. We should talk about Adequate Record for a second. Adequate Record doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> it's it's gone. Oh, uh, it, what it was, what that was, was essentially I just forked. I made a branch of Active Record, called it Adequate Record, and then basically merged it back into Active Record. So. Uh, for all intents and purposes, today Active Record is Adequate Record. They're right. The same, they're the same thing today. Just in case people don't know, because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've, I've actually had that question: like, where is where is Adequate Record now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, basically, what what Active Record does is the way that it the way that it would query the database is it would take you know you you would write out your code and it would convert that code into a SQL AST. 
and then it would convert that SQL AST into a string. Uh, then it would send that string to the database and then get your results back and return them to you. Right. And so adequate record is a set of, or I guess was, a set of patches that you wrote which improves the speed of active record by implementing some caching. Can you explain what elements of the active record process get cached and like how this caching layer speeds things up? Sure. So before uh, before the adequate record patches, essentially this, this AST would get generated and in that AST we would have uh, some dynamic values. For example, if you said, you know, uh, find a user with ID 2, uh, it would generate an AST, and that number 2 would actually be in the AST. So it would say, like, you know, select star from users where ID equals 2. That's That 2 was in the AST, and we would generate a string that had that 2 in it and send it off to the database. Now, the interesting thing is when you say, like, okay, user, if you, f- you want to find the user with ID 2, typically that number is coming from the request, right? You're saying you're getting that number two as input. It's typically dynamic. Uh, Now, what's interesting is that most of that query is actually static. The only thing that changes between requests is that number. You'll you'll be saying like, okay, I need to find the user with some ID, and that ID came from the request object. Now, what adequate record did is say, okay, let's separate these dynamic values from these static values. You know, between requests, that, that SQL statement the only thing that ever changed in that SQL statement is the ID. So the idea of adequate record was, okay, let's let's take that static part and cache it between requests and only change the uh, only change the um, the ID part of it, that that one dynamic part. So since we did that, we're able to essentially skip AST generation between requests. Right. So are there any costs to this caching? Yeah, I mean, there's clearly there's a memory cost. I mean, you have to cache isn't free, right? You have to put that cache somewhere. So we store it in memory, uh, and the size of that cache will change. Um, it's hard to say. It's hard to say exactly how much memory it costs because it depends on the SQL statement that you're caching. Um, but yeah, it does. It does cost. Mm, okay. Um, so you know, I. I, I as I, I read about this in, in a blog post that you wrote, and um, the idea is, is caching the computation for SQL. And this is a type of operation that has come up in some other episodes of Software Engineering Daily. Um, we've talked about frameworks called Spark and uh, Tachyon, which I, I know you you probably haven't any involvement in. You may not know about them, but, um, you know, these projects are very far removed from Rails, and it would be interesting if there are common threads between them. And this this concept of caching the computation for an operation is kind of counterintuitive to me because it seems like it would be cheaper to cache the results of a computation rather than caching the computation itself. So can you talk about this process of caching a computation in broad strokes and what that actually means? Um, I guess... I think you actually put it in better terms than I did. It's it's actually <laughs> what, what you're saying is actually correct. Yes, that, we're we're caching we're ca- in this case we're, the return value is essentially the AST. So we're computing the AST and then just caching that. So we could say that the computation is calculating the AST. The result of that 
computation is the AST, that is our result, and essentially all we're doing is caching that. That's that's all that's going on, really. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so it's essentially the same thing. Oh, okay. Okay, so... All right. I guess, yeah, it kind of makes sense. I don't know. I'm still, still a little confused on the topic, but... Um, yeah, we're just, we're just saying you have some function, you have some function, and that, you know, given some parameter, the output of that function is some value. And we know in this particular case that, you know, if we can separate, if we can separate that ID, pull that ID out, then doing calculating that AST is always going to have the same result every single time mm. besides that dynamic value. If it weren't, for, you know, you think about it, if it weren't for that dynamic value, then that SQL statement would always be the same. So if we can separate those two, then we just, we calculate that static part of the SQL statement once and cache that return value. Mm. So we're caching the results of that, that SQL statement computation. Okay. No, I think, I think I understand it. But so you said, you said that working on this code was at times extremely depressing. So... Could, yeah. you, could, could you expound on some of the aspects of developing adequate record that were emotionally draining? <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, like, in order to get those, in order to get those two values separated, the, um, the SQL statement and that dynamic value, getting those two bits of information to be separated from each other was uh, very difficult to do because you'd have, like, there would be bits of code that would combine the two and those bits of code would be like, you know, 30 stack frames deep, right? And you need to figure out how can I, like, how can I get those two to be separated and then uh, still be able to pass all the tests? So figuring out how to refactor, figuring out how to refactor all of that code such that it would be, you know, sustainable was, or not sustainable, figuring out how to refactor that code still pass the test, um, it was just extremely difficult, like very difficult. You'd fix one test and break a few others, and it was just, you know, not fun at times. So as a case study in how the sausage is made in these giant open source projects, once, you know, once you decided you wanted to work on this, how did the, um, how did, did the, did the integration with, and the communication with the community did that happen incrementally or did you just eventually say, okay, I've got this done and then you you submit it to the community and then they start to vet it? Or what's what's the process of getting a big, low-level change like that accepted? Uh, well, since I'm on the core team, I just do it. But <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, basically, what I would do, what I would do is um, it's, it's fairly incremental. Like, I would say, okay... Uh, here's a place where the, this code is like we need to refactor this particular spot so that we can separate. You know, in this particular case, we want to separate those two bits of information. But I do this for pretty much you know every feature that I want to add to any project. Is I say, okay, I want to add the I want to add the feature here, um, but the code like right now the code is very inconvenient. It's really inconvenient for me to add that feature because of the way the code is written. So typically what I'll do is refactor that spot such that uh, it would be more convenient, right? So it'll maintain, I refactor it such that it maintains the current behavior. I've essentially changed nothing about the behavior, but it's now more convenient for me to add a new feature. 
So because I'm doing it that way, it means that I can make changes without breaking the current, like existing, um, the existing behavior. And it means that my final diff will be much smaller. Mm. So uh, that's, I mean, adequate record. When I merged that in, it was actually not like the diff was not very large at all. It was actually a fairly small, uh, fairly small change. And the reason I was able to get away with a fairly small change is because I had done work for years uh, refactoring, slowly refactoring to the point where making that particular change would be a smaller diff. So it was essentially um, breaking it up over time and like breaking this thing up over time to the point where I finally had a smaller diff to do this. I mean, I had actually been working on that. I, uh, I don't want to say passively it wasn't really passively i mean i could say passively i was passively working on that project for many years actually like since maybe rails 3.1 um and all i was doing then is saying okay i know this optimization i know of this optimization i think we should add this optimization but if you look at the code today it's very very inconvenient to add that optimization so what do I need to do to the framework in order to make it such that I can do that optimization? Mm. So I would just make these incremental changes over time. And I mean, it requires doing something like that requires a lot of dedication and a lot of time. And to be honest, I don't think I could have like at the time I was working on Rails full time for AT&T. Uh, and I don't think I could have accomplished that project without uh, full time sponsorship. It was just like it took it took so long to do it. Yeah. Um, but those long and draining projects can be the most emotionally rewarding. Um, oh yeah. Finally merging that thing was like, yes, (sighs) finally, finally it's over. (laughs) I read about this work on adequate record on your blog and you're a frequent blogger. Why do you feel that blogging is a good complement to the other work that you do in the rails community? Is it? I don't know if it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I mean, it's a, certainly a good compliment to your personal s- sanity or s- psychology. Oh, I, I like blogging. So, I, I mean, I really like I really like teaching people. So, it's, you know, it's fun to blog stuff. I, I have to admit, though, sometimes I have, like, a lot of blog posts that are in my head. And I think about, oh, I should blog this or that. And then I'll be like... Eh, why bother? And then I don't, I don't do it. So I need to get like, I need to figure out a way of blogging that's, or I need to figure out a more efficient way of getting what's in my head down on, on you know, typed out. But I mean, I like, I don't know. I I think it's important to blog about stuff because you know, one so. Uh, one reason I like to blog things is because if you get the same question over and over again, it's easier to be like, okay, here's a go check this out. Right. Read this, read this link. Uh, the other is like, I just like, I really enjoy, I enjoy teaching people what I know, you know, or what I've learned. So I like to blog about that stuff just, just because I hope that somebody will learn something from it. Uh, I think a third reason, the third reason I blog stuff is just so I don't forget <laughs> Right. Because <laughs> I know I know I will forget and I need to come back, you know, I need to be able to like use it as a reference. So there are new programmers and some of them are choosing to learn programming with Rails. Some of them are choosing to learn with other mechanisms. Um, why would you or would you advocate uh, 
learning Rails as a way to get started for new programmers? Yeah, definitely. I mean, using Ruby is such an easy, like Ruby is such an easy programming language. And it's true, like, um, some people, I think, I think there's Ruby developers out here that say this is a bad thing, but I, there's a lot of Rails programmers out there that who, who learned Ruby through Rails, like Rails was their very first exposure. They didn't know how to program. They picked up Rails and you say, you know, what do you program in? And they say, I program in Rails. And you're like, no, you program in Ruby. They don't know that they're programming in Ruby. But I actually think it's a good thing. It says that it says that the Rails framework is so easy that anybody can pick it up. And I think that's I think it's a good thing. Yeah. Rails is, so Rails is so easy that anyone can do it. So that's why I would recommend people to you know people use Rails for sure. Mm. Are Are there any anti patterns that you see new developers with Rails uh, consistently? partake in oh anti-patterns um i can't say that i've seen anyone do any one particular anti-pattern consistently i think maybe one thing is that um well it's really hard it's really hard and it's something that i don't think you can learn how to do without experience uh but i see a lot of people Sometimes people will send way too many parameters to a function that won't use enough objects. But sometimes I see people using too many objects, um, things like that. And you can't, it's, it's very difficult for me to say to you, like, this is the right answer, <laughs> right? I can't, I can't really do that. It's a lot more uh, soft topic than that. It takes, it requires experience to see that, see that type of stuff. Um, but I mean... I can't say so. That's why it's hard for me to say that there's any one particular, you know, one particular anti-pattern that I see. Uh, I guess like what I would say is you know avoid doing like if you read if you read about some really cool technique, um, don't use it. <laughs> if you're if you're a new if you're a new programmer, don't you don't just don't like wait wait a while just wait a little while nothing you're not going to get you know nothing is going to hurt you by waiting you'll be yeah. fine if you wait a little while you know gain a bit more experience do some you know program for a bit longer like i encourage people you know wait maybe wait maybe wait like a week just a week even <laughs> <laughs> you know right. uh but yeah i don't know it's tough it's tough to say i think as a as a new programmer you're like Every you know every kind of cool technique that you see, it's really tempting to use those, um, and I'd encourage new programmers to just you know wait a little bit, mm. do some you know try to figure it out on your own. So I'd like to begin to close off with a question about the future. What is the future of Ruby on Rails? What is the future of Ruby on Rails? Uh, I'm trying to think of a pun and there's nothing coming. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. It's really, it's really hard to say. Like I want Rails's future to be bright. And I think I, like I've already gone over why this is. I love programming in Ruby and I really want everybody else to be programming in Ruby as well so that they can, uh, I love it so much and I want other people to love it as well. So I, I mean, as long as, as long as I'm contributing to Rails, I want to make. I'm going to work to make Rails' future bright. Um, as far as like 
what's coming with the web is concerned, like actual technical features, um, H2 support, which I'm working on. Um, trying to think of trying to think of anything else. I mean, the new stuff coming up with you know, especially WebSocket support. I think it's great, great stuff that's coming out with uh, Rails five. So that's really exciting. Um, but yeah, major things are like H2 support, though I hope that nobody notices that we have that. <laughs> <laughs> why, why do you say that? Well, I just, so, so my ideal, like when I'm adding stuff to Rails, my ideal, my ideal way of adding things is such that the feature is there, but you don't notice it's there. Because typically, if you notice it's there, it means that I broke something. <laughs> oh. So, so I just want to have the support there and, you know, maybe you upgrade rails and you don't know it yet. And then you're like, you don't know that it has H2 support and you're like, huh, I wonder if rails has H2 support. And you're like, oh, you know, you Google and you're like, oh, it does. I'll just turn that on. And then you do and everything works. So yeah, you really like subtlety as a virtue, it seems. Yes. I don't want, I don't want anyone to notice that I am there. Right. Um, so what advice do you have for people who are, thinking about getting involved in open source? Hmm. Advice for people who are getting involved in open source. Uh, hmm. I don't know. It's hard. That's, that's hard. It depends on the, it depends on the community that you're joining. Uh, I think the best advice that I could give to you is, or give to someone who wants to get involved is, um, one, be patient uh, and two, don't give up. Uh, I think like it's getting involved at first is very difficult because you might not know exactly what that project needs. So, you know, you say, Hey, I want to contribute. I want to contribute to rails. Um, so you, but you don't know what the pro you don't know what rails needs. So you don't know what exactly to contribute and you will learn that over time. So start out with something small that's like, I don't know, if you can find a bug, if you can find a bug, fix the bug, or uh, maybe add, you know, update some documentation or something like that. Start out small, uh, and then once you get more and more involved with the project, you can start tackling larger, you know, larger issues. And the other thing is, so I said, you know, be patient. Like, you, if you want to start doing substantial stuff, it's going to take time. So that's why I say. You know, that's why I say be patient. Mm. Well, that seems like a good place to close off. Aaron Patterson, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's been super interesting talking to you about Rails. And um, as a frequent user of Rails, I'm uh, very grateful for your contributions to the project. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I had a good time. <laughs>